Uh, We're going to read from Isaiah 40. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then verse 9. We're going to teach through the the bulk of this passage, but as Christy said, it would take quite a while to read the whole thing. And I'm going to teach through the whole thing, and so uh, we figured we would just kind of read these key verses up front. So verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 9. If you've got one of the black hardcover Bibles, that's on page 599 of that Bible. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 9. And remember as we read, we're reading God's Word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Go down to verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. That's God's word. You can be seated this morning. Amen. This is a passage I told someone just before this. If this don't light your fire, your wood's all wet. Uh, Because uh, you don't even have to be a good preacher to get excited about this passage. Uh, the, The quality of my sermon will not matter much as you get a glimpse of who God is. And that's important because A.W. Tozer said this. He said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Consider that statement for a moment. The most important thing about us, not our family, not our work, not our background, not our financial position, not even our future, our destiny, our dreams, or our goals, or our vision. What comes into our mind when we think of God, that's what's most important. That's a bold statement. That's a big statement. Why would Tozer say that? Well, the reason is because Tozer knows that that our perspective on the vertical reality shapes our perspective and our actions in the horizontal reality. So to be more specific, what we think about God has implications on how we live. The things that we do, our behaviors, our practices, our attitudes, the way we treat one another, the way we live out our lives flows out all the time of what we think about God, what we think is true, what we think is important. And what I've found is that there's a difference between confessional faith, what we say we believe, and functional faith, what we actually believe in any given moment, right? So confessional faith is you're here on Sunday, you say, God, you're stronger, you're Lord of all, I can trust you, I can love you, and and you believe that, and, and you really do. You really do have this sense of God is great, and I trust him, and he's wonderful, but then tomorrow there will become a time when you will be anxious, and you will be worried, and you will be concerned. I don't know if I can trust God. And it won't come out like that. You won't say, I don't know if I can trust God. You'll just start worrying about your money or about your kids or about your job. And so there's this gap between confessional faith, what we say we believe, and functional faith. And the the process of spiritual growth is the process of that gap narrowing. Does that make sense? Where increasingly, the more you grow, the more what you say you believe is actually what you believe in the moment. And so what this series is about, this 4G series, is about helping us to see who God is, to get this vertical perspective right, and then to directly see how how it has obvious and clear horizontal implications. And so my hope for this series is that for you, wherever you're at, whatever you'd say you believe, whatever you functionally do, that that gap would narrow, that you would be able to grow. 
See, we believe that every sin that we commit, the lies we tell, the lust we harbor in our heart, the anger that comes out in a, in a flurry or an explosion of some kind, we, we believe that all that, every sin, the gossip, the slant, all of it flows out of us believing lies. It, it comes because functionally in the moment we don't believe something's true. So for example, if we're angry, we don't really believe in that moment that God is good and that God is sovereign and that he has good purposes for us. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge and it doesn't go our way and we get mad. Sometimes that, angry, that anger is kind of under the surface and just sort of there and it's bubbling and boiling and then sometimes it comes out. If we lie, we're believing a lie that someone else's opinion is more important than God's opinion of me, right? So that's a, a lie we believe. If we overwork, we, we're believing that the, my life only has meaning if I can prove myself. And so I got to work and I got to get out there and I got to put in more hours and I got to rise the ladder and I got to climb and I got to on and on. And, and, and work is great. God created work. There was work before sin and there will be work in the uh, new heavens and the new earth. That's great. But overwork, this preoccupation, that sin flows out of a lie. Does that make sense? And so what this series is about, this 4G series, is looking at these four great truths about God. We'll we'll look today that God is great, so I don't need to be in control. We'll see that God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. We'll see that God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. And then we'll see that God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. And we taught this series a couple years ago when we were back at Perry High School under the name Second Mile Church. I don't know how many of you were there for that, uh, but it had a great impact on us. And so we decided to teach this as a whole uh, redemption church across all four of our congregations. And I'm going to tell you that if you can grasp these truths, uh, this truth today and the truths in this series, I, I hope you'll keep coming back for it. If you can grasp this, it will change your life. These truths... When, when, and they're so memorable and they're so kind of catchy, you know, that, that you can remind yourself of these. We were talking about this with some of our pastors and uh, Justin Marshall, who leads the student ministry over at our Gilbert congregation, he was saying that, uh, that every day, I think it's at 8 o'clock, his iPhone sends him a reminder. And that reminder has all four Gs written out. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is great, glorious, on and on and on. And he says, I know them. I know them by heart. I I tell them to myself. I speak them to my wife and kids. I I know these, but every single day I need this reminder and I discipline myself to every day read these things because if I can get these four truths into my life, I know it will change me. And those of you who know Justin know that that's true. And some of you do know him. And it's rooted, all of this, in Psalm 145. Uh, Psalm 145. And you don't need to turn there. I'll turn there. We'll put some of this on the screen. Uh, Psalm 145 really is the place uh, that tells us all four of these Gs. And so this is one of the places that we get this, uh, this description of who God is. I'll just read it off the screen. That'd be easier than turning there myself. Uh, David, uh, I believe it is, that writes, I will extol you, my God and King. And bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. 
They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And so we'll come back to this uh, passage. But what happens is in Psalm 145, this is just declaring God is great. God is good. God is gracious. And so what we're going to do each week is we're going to look at a particular passage that really gives us a picture of it. Because I don't know about you, but I find that just to say something's true is one thing. To show me a picture of it, to paint a picture of what that looks like, is a lot more helpful for helping it stick uh, for me. So today what we'll look at is Isaiah chapter 40. I do want to tell you this as well, and this will be the last thing and then we'll, we'll dive into this. Um, these specific phrases, uh, the way they're phrased and things like that, come out of a book that has been really influential for me and for all of our pastors and elders and for our, our staff and for many of you. And it's a book called You Can Change. Uh, you Can Change. It's by Tim Chester, God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behavior and Negative Emotions. Unbelievable book. If you have any area of your life that you would like to see change, this is an incredible resource for you. At the end of each chapter, there's what's called a change project. And I've actually gone through it multiple times, trying to change multiple different things. And it's, it's an incredible resource. And um, what happens is as people read the book, they really, really like it. And then they get to chapter 5, and they love it. And chapter 5 is the four Gs. So it's the truths that you need to turn to if you really want to change are these four G's. And so we've made this book available. Uh, it's for sale. We've got, I think, about 50 copies. You can get it for $10 here. I think it retails for about 15 or 16 uh, We're selling these at our cost. Uh, no, no additional money to be made here for this. But this is a book we'd love. If everyone in our church could read this book, that would just thrill me. I'd like you to read the Bible more. But, uh, but if, you, if you're going to read something else, this would be a great place to start. God is great. So I don't have to be in control. That's the truth today. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. All right, uh, look to the person on your right. Get a good look at them. Everybody, come on, Casey. Look, look to them on your right. All right, look to the person on your left. You're looking at a control freak. All right, everyone in here is a control freak. There's just Some of us admit it, and some of us don't. But everyone here wants to be in control, likes to be in control, likes to have everything go their way. Um, I was asking Molly, what are the ways in which I'm a control freak? And um, she couldn't think of any. <laughs> it's actually not true. Most of them actually, embarrassingly, have to do with, uh, with sleep for me. So I've always got to have a, a cup of water, you know, right by, because I get thirsty at night. And... Uh, and I've always got to fluff my pillows a certain way. And then the blanket has to be where, um, this is a little confusing, but it has to cover my feet because I don't like my feet to be cold and I like a little kind of pressure on them. But, I, but my leg gets hot, so, it, so the sheet kind of comes in, and, but my shoulders get cold. And so I have a very, you can tell, I have a very particular way about these things. She goes, I, I don't care, you're just weird. Like it doesn't affect me, but you know. We all have these things, right? We all have these things. I got to do it this way. I want this to go that way. And, and the reality is if we don't admit that God is great and that he's in control, this tendency in all of us to control things will ruin us. It will ruin our relationships. It will fill our lives with all kinds of negative emotions and anger and sin. 
So here's how this might look if this goes too far. And, and we all have the ability. We all take this too far when we don't believe this truth. It, it might be things have to be done your way. Not you like them done your way, but you can handle it a different way. It has to be done my way. This is how we do this in our house. This is how it has to be done. This leads to manipulating people, manipulating situations. You, you're going to guilt somebody. Well, last year you had Thanksgiving at, at their house. Now it's going to be, right, because you've got to be in control. You've got to manipulate. You're going to shame. You're going to guilt. You're going to withhold certain things. You're going to withhold communication. You're going to withhold intimacy. You're going to withhold uh, your time and availability to, to manipulate, to control, to get what you want. This is surfaced when we get preoccupied with money, right? A lot of times the love of money is not really about money. A lot of times it's about control. It's about the security that we think we have and we want to control our world and control the experiences and control that we give our lives a better kid, our kids a better life than what we had. And so that's fundamental. And so if you're, if you're finding yourself often worried about money, worried about how are we going to make this meet, a lot of times that is a control thing and, and it surfaces from not really seeing that God is great and that God is in control. Man, this is common for us, a, a constant sense of just frustration. Life's just not going the way you want. You're not the person you thought you'd be at this point. You're not in the job you thought you'd be in at this point. Your financial thing's a little tighter than you'd like to be. Your, your family's just not, right? And, and there's just this sense of, and, that, and what that is, fundamentally, that anger, that frustration you feel, it's wanting to be in control. And so a lot of times what happens, and this happens for women too, but for men is, is that desire to control comes out then in unhealthy ways. Sometimes it will come out in a fit of anger and a fit of rage. Sometimes it will come out in unhealthy behaviors like pornography and lust and affairs and things like that. Sometimes it will come out in materialism where you go, I know I'm in debt, but I just got to have that boat because then I'll feel like I'm in control of something. Right? And so all these issues we have fundamentally come because we're trying to control things and we don't see who God is. And so Isaiah 40 comes to the rescue for us. And I love Isaiah 40. Go ahead and open back up to it. We're just going to work through this passage. Uh, Isaiah 40 through 66 is what scholars have called the book of comfort. And so Isaiah's uh, book here, all 66 books, break up into kind of five sub-books, if you will. And uh, this book of comfort begins in chapter 40. You see that? It's called that because of verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This last chunk of the book of Isaiah is all about comfort. And so it's filled with promises about who God is and what he's done. It's uh, in the middle of it, right in the heart of it, is Isaiah chapter 53, where there's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who would come to bear our sins and bring us the comfort of knowing God. And so it's filled with that. It's filled with promises of a new heaven and a new earth. And, uh, and so comfort, comfort my people. That's the agenda Isaiah has. He wants to comfort us. But notice, if we go to verse 9, when God wants to comfort us, He does it by showing us Himself. When God wants to comfort you, when God wants to bless you, He does it by showing you Himself. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now, to behold something means to fix your gaze at it, to look at it, to dwell on it. Behold your God. Get up to a high place. This is good news. This is comfort. See God. 
That's the only real command here in this passage. The rest of this passage, besides behold your God, the rest of it is just saying, here's who God is. When you see him, here's what you'll see. And so what I want to do together is I want to look at this passage and just go through it. And what you'll see is if we behold God, if we want to see him and look at him and dwell on him, he's like a jewel. And it would be like holding up a diamond or a jewel and, and turning it and seeing every little glimpse of light and beauty. And that's what this passage is. Listen, hey, control freak. Me too. You've got to see God. If you don't see God as he really is, then you'll never know who you really are. You'll never know what's true and you'll never be free. Let's see him. Who is God? Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. So first of all, he's powerful. I've got at least 13 things here if you're jotting down notes, but you can just circle some of these words. God is powerful. He comes with might. He is strong. He's powerful. He can do what he wants. And his arm rules for him, it says in verse 10. He's sovereign. He's the ruler. That word sovereign means God does as he he pleases. There's, There's no one he answers to. There's no one he has to give an account to. He can do what he wants. He's a sovereign, powerful ruler. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So God is powerful and sovereign. But number three, God is tender. God's a shepherd. See, this is, this is part of the good news. See, all of us would like a God who's big and powerful and strong. But a God who's big and powerful and strong is nothing but a threat unless you know that his heart is for you. And so to see that God is a tender, loving shepherd, this is what uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great American thinker and pastor and Puritan said, uh, is that the combination of, of all these diverse excellencies of God in Jesus Christ, that God is powerful and strong and yet also tender and kind. That's his heart. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. God is huge. Number four, God is huge. Right? Just look at the imagery of this, right? That measured the waters. So picture all the waters in the whole earth. And it says he, he has that in the hollow of his hand. It says he marked off the heavens. That's the universe. That's the stars and the galaxy. He marked off the heavens with a span. Open your hand as wide as you can into a big thing like you're going to palm a basketball or something. That, that tip of your pinky to the tip of your thumb, that's your span. That's what that word means. And God is measuring the universe with his span. Right? Now, God doesn't literally have a hand like that. God doesn't literally measure the waters that way. But this is to communicate God is huge. God is above and over everything. I love that picture at the end of verse 12. He weighed the mountains in scales. I picture a little boy playing with his Legos, right? And he's got all his Legos and he's kind of counting them up and getting them piled up in different colors and different things to build something. That's what God's like, like uh, Mount St. Helens, Mount Everest, Mount Rainier. Just, just, there he is just playing. That's how huge God is. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit 
of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? This tells us God is all-knowing. Whom did he consult? No one. Right? How many of you this week, when, when was the last time that you sought advice from somebody? Can you think of that moment? I, I, I did that a number of times this week on issues big and small, different things. When, when did you last do that? You know, God's never had that experience. God, God's never needed advice. He's never needed consultation. No one ever went, you know, God, we'd like to do this performance review. We don't think you measured up here. We gotta, we gotta do some remedial instruction, right? That's never happened to God. He knows all. And God is worldwide, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. And emptiness. God is the God of nations. Now this would be significant for the people here reading this because in the ancient Near East, every nation, every culture, every city had its own gods. And so the God of Israel and the God of the Baal and the God of the Canaanites and the God of the Perizzites and the God of the Hittites and the God of the Termites and the God of... They all had their own gods. And what this is saying is, no, 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 no. God's the God over all of them. Right, The equivalent would be today, someone that says, well, that's nice that you believe that. That's good for you. I'm glad that that works for you. I'm glad that, that you have that God. Well, they have their God and they have their God. This is saying a definitive truth claim. God is the God over all the nations. He's the king. He's worldwide. You can't help here but think about the Olympic opening ceremonies and all these nations gathering together in every different color and language and ethnicity and background. He's God of all of it. He's powerful, he's sovereign, he's tender, he's huge, he's all-knowing, he's worldwide, he's incomparable. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Jump down real fast to verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? God is incomparable, there's no one like him. He's absolutely on his own. This is what the Bible means when it describes him as holy. Holy means set apart, distinct, incomparable, nothing, no one like him. Now now we try, in our control freakness, we try to to manipulate him and we try to, to, to shrink him and we try to make him kind of more manageable, right? That's what Isaiah talks about in verses 19 and 20. God says, who are you going to compare me with? An idol? An idol, verse 19, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains, right? We hired a carpenter to build it. And then we hired a metalsmith to over, right? Like what? He who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. God's saying, listen, you, you can't shrink me. And what would happen here is we would want an idol. We would want an idol that we make in our image, that we can control and that, that we can manipulate and that we can get to do what we want. And we can do good things and he'll have to bless us. And if we avoid the bad things, then he'll have to bless us, right? And we, we want a God that's more manageable. What this is saying is you can't compare me to anyone. I'm all-powerful. I'm ruling. I'm huge. You can't compare me. 
Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. When was the last time you did that? Stretch the curtains. That's how God made the world. Easy. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Verse 23, who brings princes to nothing? That sounds like what we just read about in uh, Daniel. If you were here the last few weeks, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King Belshazzar, God just brings them to nothing quickly. Uh, Scarcely are they planted, verse 24. Scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. This is saying the most powerful people in the world, God can just go... And their lives disintegrate. God is also, therefore, the creator. He stretches everything like a curtain. He rules over it. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He, he, He not only speaks it into existence, he sustains it and upholds it by the word of his power, the scripture tells us. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Verse 26 tells us this idea. God's a creator and a sustainer. He created. He says, Isaiah here says, look up in the sky. You can't do that right now. But what I, one of the things I love about our part of town out here in the far southeast valley is that on a dark night, you can get to places where you can see the stars. Don't you love that? And what Isaiah says is, go out tonight and look up. Who created these? He did. He brings out their host, that's the stars, by number, calls them all by name. God calls He's named every star, right? I think there's a thing online where you can go and buy someone you love a certificate where they name the star after them. God beat you to it. He he knows them all. He made them all. And it says not one is missing. He sustains it. Do you know how big the universe is? Do you have any idea? Uh, Chester, in his book, You Can Change, says this. Traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second... You would encircle the earth seven times in one second and pass the moon in two seconds. You get that? So speed of light, you'd go to the moon in two seconds. That's, that's fast, right? The moon seems to me kind of far away. I don't know about you. At this speed, it would take you 4.3 years to reach our nearest star and 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. There are thought to be at least 100 I got that right, 100 billion galaxies in the universe. It would take 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy and 20 million to reach the next cluster of galaxies. And you have still only just begun to explore the universe. And get this, the Milky Way uh, galaxy, right? That's just one of these uh, 100 billion galaxies in the universe. If the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the United States of America, you know how big our solar system would be? The size of a quarter. <laughs> a quarter in North America. That's ours, right, right? So to say, like, we're not the center of the universe, right? You ever tell your teenager that? 
you're not the center of the universe, you know. That's the biggest understatement ever. You're not the center of the universe. God is huge. God is big. And he knows all of these things by name, right? This is not the kind of person that you just invite into your life to be your co-pilot, your assistant, right? This is the king of kings. This is the Lord that you bow down to. You say you created it all. You sustain it all. You know it all. One more example of this. Say we wanted to pay SRP or APS to power the sun. Right? Do you know how much money it would cost to power the sun? Well, if you take the gross national product, that's all the, from what I understand, all the, the money that's made from American corporations. It's about $14 trillion a year. If you took that, you would, you would need 7 million years of the U.S.'s GNP. Right? There's a lot of commas there. I'd show you the number. Right? So, so 14 trillion times 7 million, that's how, much, how many dollars you would need to pay APS to power the sun for one second. And, and, and God, just by chance, positioned it so that it's just exactly the right temperature so that you don't incinerate or freeze, unless you live in Phoenix. <laughs> this is a powerful, creative, sustaining God. And God is not, again, God's not just powerful, He's also tender. And God's not just transcendent, He's also imminent. He's close. He sees everything. It says, verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Right? The, the tendency would be to go, okay, well, God's so big, He's, he's done so much, He's in charge of so many things, how's He going to have time for me? How's He going to know about me? And Isaiah says, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? God sees everything. God knows everything. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. God is everlasting. He's eternal. He's never begun. He'll never end. And he doesn't tire. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. How can God give power to the faint? Because he doesn't tire. I don't know about you, but when I see friends and close people, I say, how you doing? I usually get one of two answers. I usually get either fine or I'm really tired. God's never answered that way. God is great. He's doing perfectly well ruling the universe. Thank you. And he's not tired at all. This is a staggering thing, especially if you think about the idea that God created us to sleep. And yet he doesn't tire. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't need it, right? We, we will, I read a story, I don't know the details of this, but somebody who uh, in the Euro Cup, during the Euro Cup of a few weeks ago or whatever, uh, had stayed up so many nights in a row trying to watch all these different games and different things and had taken, eaten so much, drank so much Red Bull and other stuff, he died of exhaustion. We need rest. God doesn't. Why did God create sleep? Right? If, if we're made in his image and he doesn't sleep, why wouldn't he just make it where we didn't need to sleep? Think about this for just a moment. Imagine how much more you could get done if you didn't have to sleep. 
right? You'd be able to work a full job and do full-time ministry, and you'd have all this energy and stuff left over for your kids and family. You might even write handwritten notes to family in other parts of the country and not just forget about them like I do, right? I mean, like, you, you could do so much. Why, why wouldn't God make it that way? And Pastor John Piper offers a suggestion. He says this, Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, Psalm 121 says. But Israel will. God won't sleep, but Israel will. For we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. And it doesn't matter if you're a janitor or if you're the president. At some point, you got to sleep. But God doesn't doesn't grow tired. And he gives power to us. Notice this connection here. Look at verse 28. Towards the end it says, he does not faint or grow weary. This, this phrase, faint and weary, these are going to happen again and again. He, does, he doesn't faint or grow weary. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. He's saying, even young people who, right, I mean, you just look at your children and you think, how do you have that much energy, right? And yet they do. Even youths grow tired, grow faint and weary. Verse 31, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So who is God? We behold who God is. God is powerful, sovereign, tender, huge, all-knowing, worldwide, incomparable, creator, sustainer, sees everything, everlasting, doesn't tire, gives us strength. That's great, right? Well, if God is great, then we don't need to be in control. And listen, notice I'm not saying God is great so we shouldn't try to be in control. It's God is great, so I don't need to be in control. I, I, I can't control anything anyway. <laughs> I don't need to cling on to this. I can, I can trust Him. I can let go. Well, the question then is, why don't we? Why don't we trust God in the moment? Why, why is it that we trust Him now in this thing when we hear this, 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 this idea of who God is, but, but then tomorrow there's the gap? Why? Why do we struggle to believe this? I think the first reason is because the root of all sin is wanting to be like God. The temptation that the serpent offered Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 was this. You can be like God. And so there is in us, we, we look at God, and, and this is how we think of ourselves, especially when we're filled with pride. We know everything. We don't tire. I can, I can say yes to everything, right? I just keep going, right? And, and yet we, we eventually collapse. But we somehow, we think we're like God. This is the root of our sin. And so when we say, you don't need to be in control, what I'm saying is, you can give up your fundamental desire to be God. 
There is a God, you're not Him. But that's a hard thing to let go of. The second reason I think we don't believe it is we have the illusion of control. We, there, and, and the illusion is fairly real to a degree, right? I mean, the, a lot of what we do, we are in control. You, you do what you want. You make choices. Those are real choices. No one makes you do those things. Even the times when you feel like someone manipulated you into it or tricked you into it, you made the choice, right? You, you do have real control. But you don't have ultimate control. You get it? See, we have real control, but we're under the illusion we have ultimate control. And that's why we get angry, and that's why we worry, and that's why we get anxious, and that's why we're everyone around us has to live on pins and needles because we think we're in ultimate control. And then cancer happens. And then an accident happens. And we see the veil is lifted, the illusion disappears, and we see... I'm not in ultimate control. But we think we are. I think another reason why we don't believe this is we think that our, and this is true, our circumstances often feel more real than God does to us. Right? This is wonderful to be immersed in this. This is part of why we come to church is because you're not going to hear this anywhere else. Right? You're not going to hear this on TV. You're not going to hear this somewhere. This is why we come here. we got to see who God is. But in the moment when that gap exists, our circumstances and the pressure and the creditors calling and the, oh, it feels more real than God. And since we live out of how we feel, we're driven then by our circumstances. The last reason I think that it's hard to trust God's control is we don't really trust His heart. We know he's powerful, but we're not sure he'd want to use that power to help me. I know he's powerful to help someone else. I know he, I know he could do it. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray for healing. I know he could, but I don't really think he will. I don't think he'd want to. Maybe it's because I know what I've done. I know my sin, and there's no way he could forgive someone like me. Maybe I just don't trust that he's for me. We don't trust God's heart. We, he's powerful. He's strong. He's great. But is he good? Well, we'll tackle that a bit more in a few weeks, looking specifically at the goodness of God. But remember, chapter 40, verse 11, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God is a shepherd. And if you ever doubt God's care for you, you have to, again, behold your God. You have to look at Him. You have to see Him. And, and w- what you see, if you go to look at God, if you go to the Scriptures and you say, God, show me who you are. Reveal yourself to me. Do you know what you eventually see? Jesus. Right? We often say, if you just look at Jesus, you'll know what God's like. That's why. If you look at God you'll eventually see what Jesus is like. Well, who is he? What is he like? And and how do we know? How does Jesus prove to us that God's heart is for us? See, if you end up seeing all these, these qualities, you see Jesus. And he proves to us that he's powerful, that he's great, and that he's good. And he does it by going to the cross for us to to die in our place so that we don't have to be in control anymore. So that we don't have to be slaves to our own desire to rule everything. So that we can have freedom and forgiveness. I love what it says in Romans 8.32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you get that? God gave up what was most important to him, his son. And he did it, why? For you. His love for you. Then how are you going to go, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if he really wants what's best for me. He gave up the most important thing for you. How will he not also give you everything else you need? Now listen, part of what you need might be that the answer to the prayer is no. Part of what you need might be suffering and pain that he's with you through. So it doesn't mean everything's rosy, everything's going to go exactly how you want. Again, that's you trying to control it. But it's saying if God is for us and he has not spared his own son, but he gave him up, how will he not also give us everything? The next verse says, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is great. And God's heart is for us. And we can trust him. And we don't need to be in control. I'm going to invite Christy and the band up uh, to come and to, to play um, this song. And, and what I'd like us to do as we do this is, um, is to just behold our God. So we're not going to have you sing necessarily with this. We'll put the words up on the screen. And we want to just invite you um, to sit and to listen and to look at these words. If you want to even kind of look in your Bible and see, wow, this is all just coming straight out of here. That's, that's fine to do as well. Uh, but we want to invite you to just to meditate on who God is. Perhaps there was a particular part of God's character, uh, his, his power or his, his hugeness or his knowledge or something specifically that you need to trust. And so as you listen to this song, take a moment to, to pray through that and to ask God to give you faith to trust him, that the gap between what you say and what you do would, would narrow. And so, uh, Christy, uh, yeah, lead us in this. Thank you. <laughs> 